Well, naturally, we're beginning in the beginning, in Acts, in chapter 1. We're going to go over the first 11 verses today, and I want to read those now. I'm reading out of the ESV. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go in to heaven. I don't know if you're like me in this, but sometimes it can be difficult to start new things. Um, We're experiencing that as we start this year. Is anybody else experiencing difficulty in getting revved up and started again in this new year? There may be a few cultural factors to that. Uh, the fact that this Omicron wave is just wiping through everybody makes this a, a difficult start to the year as seemingly everybody is getting sick. But aside from that, it's a fairly universal experience that to start something new is daunting. So if you Google online, you can find you know, tips and tricks to starting something new. So I'm going to pass on some of the wisdom for you. Here's just a few helpful tips and tricks for starting new projects. Uh, Ignore your inner critic that tells you you can't do it. Break the project down into steps. Choose one small step, an easy task to build momentum. Remove distractions. Ask yourself, what's the worst that could happen? Pump up your emotional state. Let your body lead the way. And I'm honestly not sure what that means, but that's what I found. Learn about time management. And then also just do it. Those are... Some tips and tricks for getting started on new things. Not all of it terrible advice, honestly, but that might be helpful for starting a work project or writing an essay. But how do you start a faith movement? How do you build a church? How do you begin a Movement of faith that is going to alter world history. Like, How does that start? That's Beyond just needing a few tips and tricks, that requires something else altogether. To start something that is going to sweep across the globe and change history forever. How does that begin? We find the answer to that in the beginning of Acts. Here, the author Luke records for us 
what happens, and in fact, what must happen for the church to get off the ground. So this morning, I want to examine, like, how does that happen? What must happen for the church to be propelled? So here's the question. What propels the church to continue the ministry of Jesus? What propels the church to continue the ministry of Jesus? What is it? You know, last week, Josh talked to us about fuel, right? What is the fuel here that propels the church forward so that they would spread across the globe, that disciples would go out fulfilling the mission of Jesus? How does that happen? What are the necessary ingredients? What propels the church? It's an important question for us. As, uh, it's really why we're studying Acts right now, because we want to be a church propelled, we want to be a church that, that worships. We want to be a church that is upward, vertically oriented as we worship God. We want to be a church that is inwardly oriented, that builds itself up, that cares for one another and loves one another. And we want to be a church that's outwardly oriented, that is about the mission of Jesus and taking the gospel out into the world. So how do we do it? It's why we're in the middle of a fundraising campaign to build a new basement and to plant a church because we want to be that kind of church that goes forward, uh, creating space for discipleship ministries to raise people up in this church and then to send them out, outward, that the gospel may go out from us. We want to be a church that raises up and sends. So it's crucial for us to ask, how does that happen? What's necessary for that, for a church to be on a mission? What propels the church to continue the ministry of Jesus. We'll find here in these first 11 verses, I'm going to lay out three crucial components for you that answer this question. Three ingredients that will propel the church forward. The first necessary ingredient is found in verses 1 through 5. The first crucial component is a provision of the Spirit's power. A provision of the Spirit's power. Jesus here teaches and shows his disciples that if they're going to Go forward in this, they will need the power of the Holy Spirit upon them. Look at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here Luke introduces himself and what he's doing. This is his second volume. He wrote two volumes. First was the Gospel of Luke. Here the second volume, Acts. And he writes this second and first book, to a person named Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God or loved by God. And there are some who think that maybe this is kind of a generic title for anybody who knows God, Luke is writing to them. Anybody who's loved by God or loves God. And this is kind of a generic catch-all title, Theophilus. That may be the case. Or it might be that this was a real specific person named Theophilus. I lean towards that way because in Luke... The Gospel of Luke, Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus, which seems to be a title for somebody. So it seems to be referencing a specific person. Likely, somebody who is a dignitary, a high-up official of some sort, who, is, who had commissioned Luke to write an account about Jesus. So Luke wrote to Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, probably with the mindset of knowing that this was going to be spread 
everywhere. So I think he was writing with probably one person in mind, but also for the church as a whole, writing an ordered account of all that had happened. That's Luke's goal. He tells us that in the Gospel of Luke, he says at the beginning, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So he says that in the beginning of Acts, that is Luke's goal. He is a physician, he's a doctor by trade, but he becomes a historian, writing down an ordered account of all that Jesus did. And this is a continuation of that story that began in Luke, a continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And at that point, you might say to me, wait a second, Aaron. You're telling me that Acts is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus, but Jesus isn't in Acts. Like he departs after the first chapter, he's seen a couple times, but Acts is about the ministry of the apostles. That's why we call it the Acts of the Apostles. Right? Well, I would say that the book of Acts is Luke's continued history of the ministry of Jesus Christ. That Jesus continues to minister. And the book of Acts is about all that Jesus continued to do. In fact, he says that here. Look at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Isn't that an interesting word? Began. How does Luke end? Luke 24 ends with the ascension. So Luke records the incarnation, the life and ministry, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and then Luke says, I was writing about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That life of Jesus here on earth all the way up to his ascension, that was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. All that he began to do and teach. So he is still doing, he is still teaching all throughout Acts. And the implication is, he has been doing, he has been teaching ever since. That we are living in the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ. And Acts just records that. And how is Jesus continuing to do and to teach? He's doing and teaching through the church. So the question is, what propels that church forward? How does the church continue the ministry of Jesus? How do they do it? Luke's going to tell us. First, he's going to remind us of what happened with Jesus after his resurrection. He was resurrected. He appeared to many people for 40 days. 40 days seems biblically significant, doesn't it? 40 years in the desert, 40 days in the desert. There's some parallelism there. But 40 days, Jesus appeared to many During that time, he proved his resurrection. You can think of doubting Thomas, who saw his hands and side. And what else did Jesus do during those 40 days? He taught about the kingdom of God. And I'll come up here in a few moments. Jesus spent that time teaching about the kingdom and what this all meant and what he was doing, what God's plan was for Israel and the nations, until he was taken up to heaven. But before his ascension, he gave his disciples a command. Verse 4 tells us about it. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. That's an interesting command. Why? Why not depart from Jerusalem? I'm like, shouldn't the church get going? Shouldn't the apostles be going out? 
Jesus spent 40 days with them there and they're supposed to wait longer? Like, shouldn't they be getting to work? People are dying. Every day, many people die. And each day you wait is another day that somebody is going to go without hearing about the kingdom and Jesus. Like, shouldn't they be, get going? Time's a wasting. But Jesus says, wait. Why? Why would the church ever be told to wait around? And Jesus says, you're going to need something first. Before you go out and before you're of any good to anybody, there is a necessary, crucial ingredient. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I think it's accurate to say that the New Testament speaks about three different baptisms. Two physical, one spiritual. So there's John's baptism. John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus and his baptism was a baptism of preparation. It was a physical baptism. People washed with water and it was done in anticipation of the coming kingdom, the coming Messiah and the coming salvation. That was John's physical baptism. It was done in anticipation of the kingdom. The other baptism the New Testament speaks about that's physical is our Christian baptism. Same mechanics, being washed with water. The difference is we are baptized on the other side of the kingdom having come and the Messiah have come. So it's not a baptism in preparation or anticipation. It's a baptism reflecting our belief and faith that the kingdom in Christ has come. And then there's a third baptism, which is spiritual And that is what Jesus is talking about here. That is what we will see happen in Acts 2. It is a pouring out of the Spirit upon his church. The two physical baptisms look to that spiritual baptism. So John looked forward to that baptism in the Spirit. Mark 1.8 says, here's John the Baptist speaking, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist looked forward to the day when the Messiah would baptize his people, his church, with the Holy Spirit, a spiritual baptism. We, as Christians, are baptized physically, looking back at and affirming and believing in that spirit baptism, claiming in our baptisms that we too have been baptized in the Spirit and have been joined to the body of Christ. That Spirit baptism brings us into the covenant community with God and his church, into union with Christ, and empowers us for life and ministry with God's people. That Spirit baptism is something we receive in salvation. It's given by God. And everybody who is genuinely a Christian has been baptized in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. So the New Testament teaches, if you are genuinely a Christian, you have had the Spirit poured out upon you, been baptized in the Spirit, and joined to the church. So we take part in that Christian baptism, looking at the Spirit baptism, looking back on that which has been done in the church and then in us. 
Here, in the beginning of Acts, that spirit baptism has not come yet. They are looking forward to it still. That baptism of the Spirit upon all of God's people would mark a new day, a new era in the history of the church, in the history of the world, a turning point for God's people when the Spirit came upon all of his people. So in the Old Testament, people had the Spirit upon them. Kings were anointed with the Spirit. Prophets anointed with the Spirit so they could prophesy. Leaders in various instances, in individual cases, the Spirit would come upon people and anoint them. But not everybody. Not all of God's people. You can think back to that situation, Numbers 11, where Moses is leading the people, then he delegates other people to help lead, and he sets up leaders, and then all of a sudden the Spirit comes upon those leaders. And do you remember what Joshua says to Moses? Joshua's all concerned about it. He says, Moses, there's a bunch of people prophesying, you should stop them. And do you remember what Moses says? No, I'm not going to stop them. If only all of God's people had the Spirit. Like, that was Moses' desire. He didn't want only himself to have the Spirit. He wanted all of the people of God to have the Spirit. So one, he knew they didn't. And two, he wished they would. He wished, he looked forward to the day when all of God's people would have the Spirit upon them. That is exactly uh, what Ezekiel is referencing, which Keith quoted this morning, that one day God would pour out His Spirit upon all His people, a heart of stone turned to a heart of flesh. It was a huge promise of the Old Testament that one day, not just a few people here and there, but all people would be baptized in the Spirit. And one of the most famous promises comes from Joel 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So one of the great hopes of the Old Testament is that one day God's people would all have the Holy Spirit upon them. That is the day they're looking forward to. It's going to happen here in a moment. We'll get to it in a couple weeks. But here in Acts 1... Jesus says, that day is coming. Wait for it. Don't go out yet, because you need the Spirit before you are going to be ministers and witnesses of Jesus. You may remember the old uh, American Express commercial slogan, American Express, don't leave home without it, right? Right? It's essentially what Jesus is saying to the apostles. The Holy Spirit, don't leave Jerusalem without it, or him. Now think about that for a second. Think about the equipping the apostles already had. Shouldn't they have been ready to go out and minister and be witnesses for Jesus? Think about what they experienced. Did they know Jesus and spend time with him in the flesh? Yes, but that wasn't enough. Had they been given the world's best seminary education? Yes, but that wasn't enough. Had they seen miraculous things that would bolster their faith and give them confidence in ministry? Yes, but that wasn't enough. Had they been given opportunity to practice ministry and to preach and heal and cast out demons? Yes, but that wasn't enough. Had they seen ups and downs in ministry, experienced their own failures, lived through crushing defeat? Yes, but that wasn't enough. Had they seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and walked with him and talked with him? Yes, but that wasn't enough. All of that preparation was not sufficient until they had the Holy Spirit. 
which should teach us something. If we are to live the Christian life, if we are to be on mission for Jesus Christ, if we are to witness to the world about who Jesus Christ is, all the training and equipping, all of the charisma, all the wonderful attributes you may possess, all of it is useless if it is not baptized in the Spirit of God. If we do not have God's help, nothing else matters. We need desperately his spirit to help us. If we have not been baptized in the spirit, we cannot be witnesses for Jesus. That is because the work we do as a church is spiritual work. We are not a people who just helps people live a better life or just kind of picks us up when we're down or just teaches us a better way. That's not the kind of community the church is. The community of the church is a community that is there to see lives changed inwardly. Hearts of stone turned to hearts of flesh. People brought out of darkness into light. People who are dead spiritually resurrected. And all of that is work we cannot do. But it's work that God does with his spirit. So we need his spirit. And that is why Jesus told his disciples to wait for the spirit to come upon them. The first thing they're going to need is a provision of spirit's power. The second thing they'll need is a commission. Direction. And that's what is given in verses 6 through 8. A commission to global witness. A commission to global witness. The next thing Jesus provides the apostles his disciples. A commission to global witness. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here the apostles, the disciples, they ask a question which is very similar to a question I anticipate receiving here in a couple months. So in a couple months, uh, my family, we're planning to do a road trip. And we are going to, our plan is to road trip up to Washington State where my brother's getting married and we're going to make a vacation out of it and spend a couple days in the car there and back. And I anticipate at some point receiving the question, are we there yet? Right? At some point, the children will want to know. At some point, my wife and I will want to know, are we there yet? How long until we get there? Is it now? Is it soon? It's the same question the disciples ask of Jesus. Are we there yet? Is this it? Notice, Jesus doesn't reprimand them for asking the question. He doesn't say, well, that's a dumb question, don't ask it. It's a good question. It's an appropriate question. It's the right question. There's no fault in the disciples for asking it. Think about that. For 40 days, he's been teaching them about the kingdom. And by now, they know all that the Old Testament had anticipated with the kingdom. Old Testament had been promising. One day, a king in David's own line would come. One day, he would return and bring the Spirit. One day... Israel would be restored. 
One day, all these things will happen and the Messiah will come. And, and they have just seen Jesus resurrect from the dead. They've been with him for 40 days. What was he doing? Teaching them about the kingdom. So they can put two and two together. And the obvious question is, okay, the Spirit's coming? That's like the last box to check, right, for the restoration of the kingdom in Israel. So, good. Is it happening now? And Jesus gives them an answer, which I anticipate giving to my kids when they ask, are we there yet? What's that answer? It is not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's a perfect answer. I love it. You can use that. Jesus isn't denying their question, but he's redirecting their focus. He says, good question, but that's not what we're focusing on right now. In fact, if I tried to answer your question right now, it would probably overwhelm you. You couldn't comprehend what will happen when the kingdom is fully restored to Israel. I mean, imagine... Jesus trying to tell the disciples about our day and all the work that would take. I'll be overwhelmed if I try and explain to my kids all that must happen before we arrive in Washington State. Well, it all depends on how many breaks we're going to take and how well you behave and how well our sanity lasts. My four-year-old and two-year-old will have a hard time comprehending 24 hours, right? Like that doesn't compute with them. So the best thing to do is just say, well, here's a task. Watch a movie. Play in your coloring book, look out the window, let's distract you. Jesus is kind of doing the same thing, not not just with a trivial distraction, but he's going to give them something else to occupy them while they wait for the full restoration of the kingdom. Because here's the reality of what's going on is, actually the kingdom had come. The kingdom had come in Jesus, he inaugurated the kingdom, he says many times throughout his gospels, the kingdom is here, repent for the kingdom is at hand, and the king of the kingdom has come, and he has Resurrected, and he's going to ascend. Spirit will come. In many ways, the kingdom has been inaugurated, and yet there's a gap until the kingdom will one day fully be manifested and restored to Israel, and all that God had promised will come to pass. When when you're looking at all the promises of the kingdom in the Old Testament, you look forward and you think they're all going to be fulfilled at one time, and then as you get closer, you realize, no, it's going to take a lot longer for all of them to be fulfilled. So, so the kingdom had been inaugurated, but not yet consummated, and there's going to be a long gap in between. So the question is, like, what are they supposed to do in the gap? And why the gap? It's a good question. Why is there this pause in between the inauguration of the kingdom when the Messiah had come, and then this long time, which was 2,000 plus years now, until the consummation of the kingdom? Why such a long time? Well, it's because there's a mission to be accomplished in the meantime. The world needs to get ready for the kingdom. Jesus gives them a mission. You will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You don't need to know when the kingdom will fully come. In fact, we're not supposed to predict dates. I just saw this week there was a book published a few years ago, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Whoops. You don't need to know 
the days or times. That's not the point. Here's what you need to know. You have been given a commission to be witnesses of Jesus. That's why there's that gap between inauguration and consummation. All this time for the church to witness to the world that Jesus Christ has come and he is returning. So do you want to know why we exist? Do you want to know why the kingdom hasn't fully come yet? Do you want to know why the calendar switched from 21 to 22 and why we're still here? The only reason, ultimately, we're still here is to be witnesses of Jesus. That's the only reason the world still exists in the state it does. You ask, how long, O Lord? How come you haven't fixed everything yet? How come we still are suffering here? How come all this is still going on? The reason is God in his grace and mercy and patience is giving more time for more people to enter the kingdom, which means there's more time for the church to be mobilized, witnessing to the world that the king has come. It is why we exist. Is why the end hasn't come yet. So that more may enter. And notice the scope of this commission. It is global, right? And this is where I think the disciples probably needed some reorienting because they said, when are you going to restore the, the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking still pretty geopolitically that all these things would be consumed with Israel. And what Jesus is going to do is have to kind of expand their definition of who Israel is. that the borders of Israel are going to expand dramatically. The makeup of the people of Israel are going to change dramatically. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to the surrounding area of Judea and Samaria. And just, by the way, note how Judea and Samaria are united there. Great biblical theme tied together what was once divided, now united and then to the end of the earth. If you remember from Luke, there's kind of a journey theme in Luke. If you've studied Luke, if you remember from our sermon series, Luke kind of starts in the outskirts in Galilee, and the whole progression of Luke is towards Jerusalem. There are key points where it says that Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem, and it ends in Jerusalem with the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. So, Luke, in the first volume, is heading inward toward Jerusalem. And then Acts does the exact opposite. It starts in Jerusalem and goes outward. It's a bringing in and then spiraling out. And that actually will form the the structure of the whole book. If you want to know how Acts is broken up, Acts 1 through 7 focuses on their witness in Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7. Then 8 through 12... It shows the church's witness in the areas around Jerusalem. And then 13 through 20, they're a witness to the Gentiles in the world. And then 21 through 28, ending and focusing on Paul's witness in Rome. So we have Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth, kind of starting with Rome. And then you say, well, Rome isn't the end of the earth. And well, that's the point. It continues outward from there, even on to Olathe. There is this expansion going on where the borders of Israel now encompass all the world, and the people of Israel now include Jew and Gentile. And you say, does that mean there's no future plan for ethnic Israel? No, no, Paul will talk about that in Romans 9 through 11. There are still 
a future and a plan for God's promised people, ethnic Israelites. But they will be part of one tree, one olive tree, one people, Jew and Gentile, will become the fulfillment of all the promises towards Israel in God's kingdom people of the church. We have a part to play in the fulfillment of God's promise to the world and to Israel. We have an opportunity to be witnesses of Jesus, to tell the world what we have seen, what we have heard about our King. It's what God promised way back in Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. What God promised in Isaiah 49.6, God will raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That sound familiar? Jesus is quoting the promises of Isaiah and then giving them to us as a commission. You'll notice that these are Jesus' last words before the ascension. How important are last words? What do you want your last words to be? These are Jesus' last words to his church. You are my witnesses to the end of the earth. If Jesus' last words for the church before his ascension are to be witnesses, and how important is it that we be witnesses? How crucial is it? Again, I would say this is why we're here. I would also say this is the one thing that the church can do that nobody else can do. I want you to hear me correctly here. There are all sorts of good things that the church should do, that the church ought to do, but also that other people can do. So we can help relieve poverty. We can help with physical aid. We can help in schools. We can do all sorts of good works that the church can do and should do as a people of the kingdom. But there's really only one thing that only the church can do. And only the church can be spirit-empowered witnesses to the King, Jesus Christ. And that must be central to our focus and why we exist. If we don't do that, we don't have much reason to exist. It's the one thing only the church can do. That's why it's going to be a focus all throughout Acts. There, all throughout Acts, you're going to notice that there is this witness to King Jesus, and it'll be verbal, spoken. In fact, somebody has said that Acts reads like a collection of sermons bound together by historical journaling. There are more sermons in Acts than anywhere else. Everywhere you turn, there's another sermon, another witness, another testimony of Jesus. That is what Acts is filled with, people speaking and proclaiming Jesus. The church has been given a clear commission from him to be witnesses to the end of the earth. And then there's one last thing the church is going to need in order to do that. First, a provision of the Spirit's power, then a commission to global witness, and lastly, a vision of the ascended Lord. Verses 9 through 11, a vision of the ascended Lord. 
what we need to be witnesses to him. Verse 9. When he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So having given his commission, Jesus is ascended, he's taken up, and you wonder, where did he go? Uh, He ascended physically, but something happens here, because I don't think we can take a rocket ship up and just, like, find Jesus out there, right? It's probably not going to happen. So something happened along the way. He, He entered, you could almost say, into another dimension, that... Jesus entered into the, the dimension of the heavenly places. Maybe the most important detail here is that a cloud took Jesus out of their sight. That, that's not there by accident. That is telling us what has happened. That Jesus went up and he was caught up in a cloud. And if you know your biblical theology, you think about how clouds appear throughout Scripture. What happens with clouds? What are clouds associated with? Well, you can think of Sinai, and a cloud descending. Or you can think of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where a cloud fills the temple where God's dwelling is. Or you think of Jesus' own transfiguration, and God appears in a white cloud and speaks to Jesus, and Peter, James, and John, as they see Jesus glorified, God appears in a cloud. So God and his presence in his heavenly realms associated with the clouds. Maybe the most important cloud imagery comes from Daniel 7. You may remember these verses, Daniel seven thirteen through 14, where the Son of Man is enthroned. Daniel's vision says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Daniel 7, predicting Acts 1. The Son of Man has come, and he has come to the Ancient of Days in a cloud, and he has given dominion and authority over all nations and all peoples. So what the disciples saw here, as they were gazing up, they witnessed a coronation. They saw Jesus enthroned as he was taken in a cloud. They were witnesses to what Psalm 110 predicted. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And after that ascension, they'll receive power. Does that remind you of any other ascension in Scripture? Can you think of another place where somebody is raised up and the disciple receives spiritual power? The prophet Elijah He's raised up and ascended into heaven, and then Elisha, his prophet, receives a double blessing of his power. When you read that story from now on, you should think, oh, that's just a foreshadowing of what will happen when Jesus is raised up, and then his disciples, his followers, receive power from the Spirit. I was talking to my wife yesterday, and sometimes I ask her this question, and she I need to learn to ask this question earlier in the week because she has good answers. Um, I say, like, if you're going to hear a sermon on Acts 1, what do you want to hear? 
And again, I need to ask that question on Monday, not Saturday, while I still have time to think about it. Because uh, I'd want to hear maybe why Jesus would have to depart and why that would be like good for the disciples. She said it better than that. But, like, how does that help the church for Jesus to be away? And Jesus tells us, John sixteen seven in the upper room before his crucifixion, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So this is what has happened. Jesus has departed, if you will, physically. He has ascended into heaven. The Spirit has been poured out, giving us power that we may be his witnesses. And now the church can be even more effective than it ever would have been had Jesus remained. Do you believe that? Jesus promised it. He said, you're going to do greater works than these. He told that to his disciples. And we see that. How many followers did Jesus have at the end of his earthly ministry? Handful? The Spirit comes, how many followers are added to the church? 3,000. And then it multiplies and expands. That is what Jesus was talking about, greater works. More people are going to come into the kingdom if he ascends and the Spirit comes. So now we not only have one Spirit-filled person, Jesus, on the earth, we now have thousands upon millions of Spirit-filled people, the body of Christ, having the Spirit of Christ witnessing to the world. That is how it is advantageous for Jesus to ascend and the Spirit to come. Now the church isn't just one person located in Jerusalem, but many people filled with the same Spirit across the globe. Simple math. And for that church to be effective, we have to keep our eyes on who our King is, the ascended Lord who gives us power and we know, we are encouraged by the fact that Jesus isn't like a celebrity who gets big and leaves a small town behind and never comes back to them. You know, he remembers the little people. He doesn't abandon us. In fact, we're told he's going to return. So as they're looking up into heaven, two angels come and should feel familiar to you. At a big momentous occasion, angels come and making an announcement. Happened at the message or the announcement of the incarnation happened in the resurrection. And they say something really similar. Two angels, two witnesses, saying, why are you looking for him here? Same thing they said in Luke's gospel. Why are you looking for Jesus in the grave? He's not there. And they say, kind of echoing that same language, why are you looking for Jesus there? It's not where he is. Where is he? He is enthroned. And he will return. And there's your answer to the question the disciples were asking. When? When he returns. That same one you saw enthroned, you will see him again in the same way. In the meantime, we look to him. Again, just as Josh was talking to us last week, we look to our king. It's essential for us to be on mission for him. Same thing if you're teaching your kid how to catch a ball. How do you do it? If you're going to throw on the football with somebody and you want to teach them how to catch and throw, what do you tell them? Eyes on the ball. If you track the ball with your eyes, 
It'll go into your hand. Your hand will follow normally. For most people, there's some coordination there of eye and hand. Follow it with your eyes. Your body will follow. That's true of the church. Follow Jesus. Follow his lordship, his glory, his majesty, his awesomeness. Be consumed with that vision of him ascended, and the body will follow. It is why my goal, our goal, I think as a church, is to lift up and give you a giant, immense vision of who Jesus Christ is. All of his glory, his power, his mercy, his compassion, all of who he is, that he rules with all power and majesty and yet is a friend to sinners that he will judge the world and he will judge the abusers and he will judge the wicked and he will be, at the same time, safety for all those who find refuge in him. That he is the king who laid down his life. He is our safe harbor in the storm and the ruler over all and the one who will return to lead captives home, as we sang about earlier. We have to have a giant picture of who Jesus is, and if we do, we will be a church that witnesses to him because we'll be consumed by this vision and compelled to share it. So what propels the church to continue the ministry of Jesus? First, a provision of the Spirit's power. Second, a commission to global witness. Third, a vision of the ascended Lord. And we're going to see as we go through Acts what happens when those three things are in place. I'm going to close just with one quote because I think commentator Michael Green describes what happens well and prepares us for it. He says, Three decades in world history, that is all it took. In the years between A.D. 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion of the world the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than 2 billion adherents. It had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all of this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the Spirit came. Do you pray with me? Our Father and God, we thank you that the Spirit has come, that he has, well, your Son has baptized us with the Spirit so that we have your Spirit joining us to your kingdom people, empowering us for ministry, Lord. Help us not take that for granted. That we have no ability on our own, but all ability in you to bring life to a dead world. Help us to be faithful witnesses speaking to the truth of Jesus Christ that he is King and Lord and salvation and mercy. And Lord, keep our eyes fixed to you until you take us home in your Son. Thank you for the mission that we've been given. 
May we be faithful in it, we pray. Amen.